Listen in. Thanks for doing just that. Music, music has some sort of magical, maybe mystical thing happening, and I couldn't be more sucked in. I love it. You see, I want to live life better, unless I'm in some sort of funk and all I want to do is wallow. Songs, artists, musicians, lyrics—they help me in all sides of life. They're like lifts in my shoes. I walk a little taller. My shoulders are on my back. Yeah. Bring on life. Bring it completely on. Bring on life. So I'm full of questions and I listen in. Luckily or hopefully, I travel with a recorder and open SM58 microphones. You've got questions. I've got more. I'm Frank Jenks. I began listening with a syndicated radio program, interspersing conversation pieces with songs and subject matter. And now, I just want to offer this fullness, the greatness, the insight directly from rock stars to you this way. Once in a while, you meet someone who is funny and has sincerity oozing out every pore. That's how I'm choosing to describe Peter Hemmelman. He, along with David Hollander, put together a, a band, I'll say? Or at the very least, a stellar set of recordings under the name Minnesota. Trust me, the word stellar is an undersell. We plow through this project in unearth differing thoughts from all three of us, really. This Minnesota recording was done on October 30th, 2012, via Skype between California and Michigan. And uh, did, did you help with the lyrics at all, David? Only editorially. Yeah, I mean, I think that lyric, you know, I'm like, like you are, like anybody, I'm very interested in the written word. And, and I think the, uh, the songs that we ended up choosing for the, for the album, to me, had a kind of an explicit meaning that, that I think Peter had subconsciously written, but I was really curious about. So... Lyrically, we did sit down and go over every song and um, discuss, you know, certain choices and, you know, certainly none of the lyrics are mine, but just the editing of the lyrics were, were, were part of my process for making the songs into what I thought they could be. So I guess I was thinking that um, if you both work, I, I don't know if mainly is the word, but most of it in, in the visual medium world, now I have this record, and it makes me think visually. So is it important for music to be visual? I think that um, I think music is visual, but not in the typical sense of you know what, what we think of visual. I think that our brain creates images and feelings and colors and textures and memories and I think our brain contextualizes music and makes it imagistic, but the images aren't literally like a photograph where, you know, looking at you or you looking at me. I, but I do think that all music is transports the, the brain and has the brain create a structure that is extrasensory, and the image is part of that. And do you write your words visually, Peter? Well, I mean, the words are always depictions of some something spatial even if they're ideas in your head they all because our human experience is one of 
being in space and time, they can't help alluding to something that you can find in, in, the, in the physical universe. So where am I going to find the devil coming out of a deep freeze in the physical universe? You're going to find that in Bemidji, Minnesota. <laughs> you don't have to go far. Take a left at the light. And keep driving. I, uh, well, I took from that song that there's a lot of darkness lurking out there. Is that, is that where you think you were going with the song? Well, to tell you the truth, I probably said this on the last interview, too. <clears throat> it's not where I was going with the song. It's where the song was going with me. So I could only guess as to where that song was going. And my guess is no better than yours. I think it probably alludes to uh, some confusion in my own life, where I am the station that I am now in life at 52 years old. I'm sure it alludes to the confusion that we all feel societally and politically, um, some sort of darker portent. And I'm sure every era, every moment, every generation has always felt the same thing. I don't know that it's common to, to now necessarily. I was just picking up on it one afternoon when I happened to write that song. Why do you think we, uh, we as people think there's a lot of darkness out there at our station in life? Well, I mean, I think that by nature, you know, human beings with our soft flesh, as opposed to, say, tortoises with their hard, protective exoskeleton, are a little bit wary of things that can poke and bruise them. <clears throat> so I think the whole ride that we're on um, is, is fairly anxious. And, uh, you know, I don't say that like I'm a particularly anxious person, but, you know, I think that we're in a constant state of protecting ourselves. And it's something that we'd like to transcend. We'd like to get beyond that. And perhaps writing these kinds of songs and their mini versions of catharsis are a means to doing so. I, I think the uh, when I first heard the demo for Deep Freeze, um, my strong suspicion was the devil was inside of the singer. And that I think that we fear, we're in a constant state of fear, you know, no matter what the generation is, is we, mainly because we fear what's in ourselves. And we put that onto the world. And uh, I think that, that the devil is... is in, in each and every one of us, uh, however we might define that. I mean, it's a very Jungian com concept <clears throat> to, to think about the shadow, the shadow self, that, that part of ourself that we try desperately to sublimate, at least if we want to get along in the world, <clears throat> but is capable of, you know, doing many warlike dark things and you know occasionally when it rears its head it's it's fascinating and you know i imagine i'm as curious about that shadow part of me as as anyone else is about their own shadow side uh where are you going with the there's so many victims it's getting hard to choose and i really want both of you to respond to it if you if you can sure i mean that's actually one of the lyrics we uh we muddied with 
I recall. Um, and I think that, you know, there's the literal reading of it, which is certainly will bear out contextually in history and in the present day of what, you know, how, how, how victimization is occurring and, or genocide or pick your, pick your poison and pick your event. I think that, um, I don't know, for me, when I heard that and saw that, it is kind of a, a self-victimization idea too. Who do, you, who do you end up with when you're out? And uh, in, in, in my uh, response to Peter's work, my feeling was you end up with yourself. Um, that was my, my context for it. I'm not sure what Peter's was. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I suppose that somebody could do a sort of a more overt political reading of it. That probably wasn't where I was going. It's just not the way I think about the world. Um, and I would tend to think that David's idea was a little closer to to where I was going. Something that's more emotional or psychological, like a dream, rather than something you pick up from the newspapers. I, I just think we can all walk around feeling like a victim too, and I don't know if if you know when we're when we're quote unquote choosing victims, <laughs> if we're choosing what we're uh, this soft fleshed person walking around ourselves and you know all of a sudden you end up in a in a headspace that's probably not probably not constructive you know choosing one's own victimhood or or electing to get beyond that is a choice that you know probably has to be made hour by hour and uh definitely something i'm conscious of of trying to get beyond on a daily basis. I think it also, when we were, I remember vividly now, now that we're talking about it, we were sitting in the studio poking at the lyrics and the other lyric in that song that we, we were talking about or that I was pointing out that felt a little un, unfocused initially then Peter refocused it was throw away your sorrow, it's nothing but disease. The original lyric, I don't remember what that was, Mm-hmm. But it's the same idea. Um, your sorrow as your disease, your victimhood as your as your devil. Right, something to be overcome, something to be cured of. So you're a guy writing screenplays and whatnot, David. Is it important for most stories to to use victim and victims as something that? that I guess grabs us and, and brings us into the story? It's an interesting question. I think it depends on who you are as a writer. I think that, um, I think popular writers, um, well, that's a really broad statement. Let me, let me restate that. I think that um, there's a strain of storytelling that, that, that is more... Uh, about the, the, the broad objective world. There's the good guy, there's the bad guy, there's the victim, there's the savior, there's the person in distress, there's the person that can save that person. There's, you know, that very broad superhero, what today's, you know, big movies are all about. Um, and that's one way to write. It's never been my way of writing, but um, it's... Um, my belief is that, that in, in a good story, well-written, 
every character believes they are the hero of the story. Every character believes in what they are and has some self-doubt. And even if they're the victim, they still believe they're the hero. Um, that's my opinion of the way that I like to write. Uh, and that doesn't um, always bode well for my uh, tentpole releases, because I've never had one. Um, but it does allow me to tell the kind of stories that I love to tell and to collaborate with the kind of people that I love to collaborate with. So I guess your question, you know, yes, absolutely for some writers and, uh, and for some people who need that kind of story where, the, where ambiguity is not a big part of the recipe. Um, but I think for the more ambiguous storytellers, uh, you got to really understand what victim means. Some victims are really amazing antagonists, if you will, because they're so fucking manipulative, you know. And some victims truly need saving. So, I mean, Peter and I for years have played with this. I don't know why I'm on this ridiculous tangent. <laughs> <laughs> We've been writing this, this never-to-be-finished musical that we never really started just about that very topic. And, and, the, and the musical is such a ridiculously dark idea that I think we'll never see the light of day. But uh, it, 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 it's about a, a girl who was kidnapped and held for years and then released in her late teens and just has horrible Stockholm Syndrome and wants to go back. And uh, talk about victims being the hook of the story. Anyway, Peter shakes his head. No, no. I was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about something I read yesterday, which was there's certain ideas that are created and projected out to the world and for example it said in, in this thing that i read it may result in an hbo series it's 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 geared to resonate with a large body of people then there's something else that's a little bit more obscure and it's could be like a, in a museum a right. little bit less and then there's something that you create and i always wonder if i create these kinds of things too often that can be shown best in your basement. To yourself. To yourself. <laughs> Endlessly cycling and watching yourself. Right. Yeah, I've made a lot of that shit. It's not a, by the way, there's, I don't think there was meant to be any kind of qualitative uh, differentiation there. <laughs> it just is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think, unfortunately, I think the blush is, you know, Everything's off the rose with, with us at this point. We've been through so much in our careers that you look at it and say, you know, I think everything that we do is ultimately a home movie. Yeah, it is. And, you know, hopefully people are going to like it. I, I've always, I can't say I've always done that, but I've, I've done that a lot where I'm just following a thing because I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it's the opposite of somebody that like writes that song for Rihanna. Right. It's literally designed to like immediately connect. It's like creating a salty, sweet, uh, fatty food. It's it's meant to connect immediately. I, I, unfortunately, or fortunately, I have no such impetus. You know, <laughs> we only wish in retrospect that we did. That's the, yeah, that, no. that's, the, that's the hard thing. We wish 
looking back that the impetus was salty, sweet, and fatty when really it was like vegan. I, I used to do. I used to have that impetus, though. That's not true. I, in my band, Sussman Lawrence. Well, you have to be in your twenties, and you have to fantasize. You have to actually fantasize that the that the thing you're making is you, and that the thing you're making is going to be the thing of your happiness. And I think as you get older, you realize the thing you're making is an incredibly important extension of your life process. But ultimately, only the making it is fun, and your happiness is found nowhere in the product. No, not anywhere near the parking lot or the <laughs> fields or the forests that surround that no, particular I mean, no factory. Like, I was in the. I was. We're off on a riff. I'm sorry. I, I was at the record store the other day with my son. My son is a great collector of records, and our big joy in life is to go to this used record store down the street and. Every time he has a shitty experience that I feel he will, he needs to just kind of raise himself up, we just go to the record store. And I, I, I wasn't buying a record yesterday. I didn't really, or the other day, I didn't want to. And so I was just doing a study of record covers. And you see the phases of the artist. Phase one, artist full face shot, my album, right? <laughs> great hair, great skin, big fucking smile, good teeth. Me, my fucking album, look at me, right? Phase two, artist with, you know, an art shot, right? Artist walking down the street, shot from the side, you know, artist in a cool environment. My second album, my third album. By phase five, artist nowhere on the cover. <laughs> He's gone. There's nothing. It's just the suggestion of art. He's left the building. And it's not that the artist is gone, but the artist is old enough to either have, they either died or they turned the corner and they realized they had to get out of the way because the, no record was going to give them salvation. Every, every time they got further from the lens, it was either they, they'd been divorced, they'd lost their home, they didn't have a hit, they had to figure out a new way of doing it. And by, the la you know, by those later albums, they're still, in the, they're still making the thing they love, but they're not... Like, look at me. They don't want that anymore. You know? They know look at me is only going to bring pain. That's right. It's true. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Frank. We got, Frank, we got a typewriter on our album cover. I know, I know. But those, those aren't my hands, ladies. <laughs> ladies. <laughs> ladies. Ladies. Those are my hands. Well, I, I just wondered when, what, what's the self-portrait phase? Or maybe Peter needs to, to answer that to put his self-portrait on the cover of a record. Well, I've had a, a couple of self-portraits. Oh, um, no. Yeah, I've had a few. Synesthesia was a self-portrait. All the portraits have been slightly obfuscated, to be, to be fair. There, there was never a full-on, you know, right. clear look. Hey, I'm only going to stay with the victim for a minute. Because I think we've talked about deep freeze for 20 minutes, right? I don't even know. But, uh, but talk to me. And I'm, I'm so going back to women with the strength, right? How does that person decide that she's not a victim? And, uh, and those of us walking around figure out how we are victims. Well, I mean, as far as I know from people that knew this woman, her name is Suzanne Margolis. I don't know if you want to give the context to the song or whatever. I don't. Okay. Uh, I don't. But when I met this woman, she had ALS and she was, you know, sort of in her last uh, gasp 
with mobility and she couldn't speak. She had to use a device to, to choose letters with her eyebrows. She'd lost all, all movement. But from what I know from people that knew her, she was, she was a kick-ass woman from the get-go. So she wasn't... You don't sort of become this noble species when you get this great disease. I just think that... I'm sure she wrestled mightily with, with this thing, but when I, I met her only one day in one phone conversation after that, she was a, an incredible, powerful force that had me feeling tiny and small. Her, her will to live, her, her, her sense of leadership, her ability to influence and, and assert her will was absolutely powerful and intact, palpable. So I don't know that it's even a choice. I just, I think it could just be like you have green eyes. It, it sort of is. And you can work on it to a greater or lesser extent. As David said, there's certain misbegotten her heroism in maintaining your own victimhood. You know, everyone sees themselves as a hero, even the victim. There's a sense of, of, of being a righteous martyr. I think that's, you know, it would be hard to prove that right. I would say that's just a, something you got to let go of. Hey, so Jump to Hitchhiker, the next song. I've, I, I love it when I think when we're describing life as a journey and maybe trusting better will happen. Is that where you're going or thinking about? Or, or, that, or is that where the song took you? Thank you. There's, that's the better question. I, I suppose so, but it kind of, to me, even the, the chorus is almost a bit sinister. There's a certain sardonic tone to it. You know, change is about to come. I mean, to be fair, I don't know what that change is, if it's some special change like uh, for the better or not. I think the whole song... I love it. It's probably one of my favorite songs on the record. I love how the record came out, the rhythm section, the bass by Jimmy Anton and Noah Levy on the drums. It's it's a fantastic track. I just happened to listen to it yesterday in my car. And so the track itself, I'd probably like it with any kind of lyric. Um, but but I, I see the whole thing as not kind of wrapped up and and somehow easily redemptive in any way. Again, like I say, the song was just kind of presented to me. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the way I look at it. David, you want to have that? Sure. That one? I mean, Hitchhiker. You know, again, when I first heard the demo and read the lyric, it began as kind of, uh, it was literally in space. It was a hitchhiker. Hmm. You recall? Mm -hmm. It was a hitchhiker hitchhiking. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything other than the, the, Peter, Peter is, does a great job of sort of placing his songs in off in space and place. And I think that what I read and heard and felt was that it wasn't just a hitchhiker. You know, it was like, it became a, it, was, it went from being a car to a ride and from a this to a that. And I think that, that my feeling of the song 
wasn't the lyric initially either. When I first heard the song, it was the, it was the groove. There was yeah. a, a feeling to that groove that it had to be out there moving in the night. And I think as Peter refined the song after you know some questions being asked of it, it evolved into a um, it evolved into a much more sort of metaphysical idea, um, which I love. I, I think it's a, a you know I think it's a gorgeous song. I think it's a gorgeous lyric, and. Uh, you know, I think about some of the great songs that started, we talk about this all the time, that started with like a specific thing and became more amorphous, you know, like Shine a Light, one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite lyrics of all time, you know, began as this very specific song about, you know, drugs and overdosing and became in death, really, and became this sort of song about anything but, I mean, yes, that, but also... Shine a light. What a beautiful phrase. You know, what a, what a different way to look at it. And I think Hitchhiker is one of those lyrics that, that uh, you know, uh, evokes amazing positive, sort of positivism if you want it. But if you want to go dark, there it is. It's there for you too. Well, I, I, can, I can hear you there because, you know, change is change. It doesn't necessarily mean positive or negative, but... Uh... But I'm, but I am suggesting that it ends up positive because when it's get your light on, show your face, we're going to a better place. Shine your light, right? Uh huh. Right. Uh huh. Forgot the line. I guess uh-huh. that is right. I forgot about that lyric. Right. right. I like the idea. Get get your light on. You know, get your own light shining, not somebody else's opinion of what that light should be. And if you're able to do that, you know, you're going to go to a better place. Uh-huh. But I think there's also a question. There are questions within the the lyric outside of the, the chorus that are how do you want it to be? You know. There's a leadership quality to the to the refrain and there's a, a lot of sort of questioning um how you want this ride to go, how do you want it to be? You know, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. So David, what? Good questions in the song. Yeah. Well, I, I just think about the word change. I guess I always think change is a good thing, even though there's times when I'm, whatever, with my wife and going. I don't want anything to change right now because life is so great. But I also know change is going to come. So I guess I always sort of throw that positive spin on the word. And again, maybe that's just the way I walk around the world. Yeah. yeah some people fear change deeply. And some people love it, you know. That's the Frank Jenks way to, yes. to, to embrace the change. <laughs> We're getting t-shirts made up, Frank. <laughs> so, David, wh- why is this, was this sort of a, a thing that you wanted to do at some point, is get involved with music, or is it just because you're walking around as neighbors thinking, well, I'm walking with Peter Hamelman, I might, might want to get on his record once in a while? Um, I think that, you know... I've always been involved. Like I was a, I played music from the time I was four, you know. So I was a musician from the time I was little, and 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 a, and a great lover, like a lot of people, just a, a great fan of music. Um, 
you know, certainly when I when I started to do theater and films and and, and television, uh, I was really always involved with the recording of it because I did sound design and I did you know soundtrack and I did you know had heavy hands and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I, Peter and I have been friends a long time. There was never sort of a, a an earnest or clear direction to making a record together ever it was actually kind of a collision there was no we we just were you know we had worked on certain things we have we were working on a bunch of different ideas and it was really um i think a surprise to both of us that we did it there was no real track laid in that direction we had never once in our hundreds of hours of conversation discussed Mm-hmm. making a record together it wasn't right. even a remote it was more of a I think spontaneous combustion that's what it was it was very spontaneous so I, I think what happened was just kind of an immediate well, okay let's do it there was no time to think about it um, and I think Peter works best that way he's a very uh the closer to the due date, I can imagine the kind of student he was. Uh, you know what I mean? The closer to the due date, the harder Peter works. Um, and I'm a plotter. I've always been kind of a, you know, I like to kind of plan and think. And so I think it was, it ended up being a very complimentary and fast uh, marriage on this one. I was thinking about the way you guys work. Um with television and with film and and whatnot, can you guys watch a television show or a movie and go, wow, that music sucks for that scene, and it actually ruins the the event for you? Yeah, I mean, but so can you. I mean, bad bad score is and bad music choice sucks for everybody. That's another T-shirt. Um, it's just it's just you know, I think that. Um, Everyone has their sensitivities. I think that rarely do people watch a filmed experience and love it for the music, though. I mean, I think it's that's all music exists in that medium to serve a greater master, and the greater master is sort of some the the story itself, just like the actors exist to 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 serve it. Um, you can you only hate the music when the music interferes with the experience of gets in your way of having your feelings or your experience of the story you know so some people love you know here I'll go jump on the sacred cow some people love like John Williams and Steven Spielberg right I can't stand it it's so overwrought it's so heavily influencing trying to influence my experience that I turn off I don't want the music to tell me how to feel um, Sometimes a music is requested as some kind of insurance policy in case the writing wasn't clear and you know you have to get in there and use whatever expository elements are available. And that's the, that's the worst of it. The best of it is it's a very uh, transparent experience that, that uh, unnoticeably creates a feeling it's almost an ambiguity is best that it it creates this allows a space for you to bring your own emotions there but that's a very sophisticated thing and 
I think most often when music is misused in a film experience, it's, it's, it's a lot of times with songs. And people try to jam a lot of songs in there because, again, it's fat, sugar, and salt. Um, it's just a quick fix. There's also people trying to make deals. And you can smell the, the lawyer's yeah, ink in, on, on the experience. And I, think, I think certain filmmakers have, you know, they, the problem is that certain filmmakers have bad taste. And they, have, they love certain songs. And they're imposing, you know, when you go to a friend's house and they force you to listen to their shit music and you're like sitting in, and they're playing stuff for you and you just, a film, certain filmmakers have the ability to make you listen to their bad mixtape in their film, hmm. you know, and you're stuck going, oh, really? That one? Right. Another montage. And here we go. And it's going to be another needle drop from the same record from 1978 that you were so enamored of that like it only means something to you. You know, there are brilliant, brilliant people out there that know exactly how to sort of comb through the world of amazing music and, and find these amazing needle drops. It's just, it's all, it's all, it's all how you find it. Well, I'm not banging on John Williams or Steven Spielberg, but I am saying sometimes when you get to that place and you're writing, as you said earlier, Peter, writing a song for Rihanna, you, you know you're writing for the masses, so that's the presentation that you're going to, to put forth even when, even when you're in the creative process, right? Right, and there's absolutely, I, I seriously make absolutely no qualitative judgments about it. It's, right. it's not what I'm good at doing. It's not what I'm particularly interested in doing. Um, that would be sort of while you're constructing it, you're thinking about its influence on other people. You're thinking about, you know, I've been in rooms where people go, that's the serious money music. Like, like there's a, I mean, that's a whole experience. It's a whole genre of music that, you know, we probably all love as well. And I probably, and I love a lot of these Rihanna songs too. It's just not something that I think I could contribute well to the world. It's not my forte. Again, not trying to bang on anything, but I just noticed a bunch of publicity and posters for Cloud Atlas. And the idea is we're all interconnected. And I thought, wow, what a great idea how we're all interconnected through generations. But all the, all the paraphernalia around it, posters and the marketing of it, I kind of went, they've had to ruin this movie for maybe all this said. I haven't seen it yet. I don't, you know what I mean? But it's just like... You guys are more in that world, and I'm looking at it from my angle in Michigan going, please, if it sounds like a story I want to hear, the idea of we're all interconnected, and don't make, don't make it a product, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the trick, is that, you know, it is, it is all a product, and yet um, we're trying to create some truthful story and trust that how it gets presented to them. I mean, we, this is, this is just the horrible truth of, of what we do. We, we are, we desperately need people to sell our work. The, the difference between, are you there? And, you know, pick your record. That's at the top of the charts this week. Qualitatively, my guess is going to be incredibly hard to distinguish. If not, in my opinion, I would rather listen to our record. That's just me. But how it gets sold, what, what the presentation of it is, 
will either entice people to uh, have an experience of it before they have an experience of it, which makes them come to it. You know, that's the weird thing is they're they're actually selling you a pre like a pre hit of the experience, and you are supposed to be in that feeling like I got something free. I got a little free hit of the experience through the advertising, and I want this to continue. But what's tricky about an, a, an earnest idea, the Cloud Atlas may be a, a brilliant movie. I have a feeling that it probably is in its own right. I don't know. I mean, I love, I love what the Wachowskis do, and it looks at least vis- it looks visually stunning. Right. However, how do they sell that to you to make, put you in the mood that you got your little free taste and now you need the big hit? And sometimes an earnest sale just is deadly because, you know, it, it, it feels too precious. It feels too, you know, like it's exploiting something precious in you. You know, come watch Batman beat the crap out of the Riddler doesn't do that. I want to see that, but it sort of speaks to me in a different way. Well, I think you've been earnest with your, I'm more familiar with your work, Peter. I mean, did you ever get, did you ever go to uh, your, your marketing people at Sony Music and sort of just put your head in your hands going, well, it's not what it is, but this is what you do? No, I never did. I mean, I, I yeah. thought they, they always did a good job. I mean, they, you know, had ideas. They mostly took direction from me. Um... I thought they presented me in a, in a pretty good way. I mean, if, if I had thought otherwise, I would have had the control to, to stop it. Um, on the other hand, you know, the records never sold enough for the people who would cause trouble to ever cause trouble. You know, they left it in the hands of designers and young artists and promotion people, and our ideas were pretty much aligned. And how about with you, David, with The Guardian? Did, did they run promos and whatnot that you were always in line with? Or? No, I mean, you, you know, with anything I've ever made, there's a level of, of, you know, debate between creative ownership and literal ownership. You know, that's the issue. When you, when you are working with a major corporation, you don't really own your work. You, you own the process, but you don't own the product. So, yeah, I mean... In order to control the way your product is sold, you have to, it has to sell successfully. You know what I mean? If you're on the fringe, so with The Guardian, I deeply disliked the way they sold it initially, but once it became a hit, I took over that element because I could. I've had shows that were not hits where I disagreed with the sell, but could never take it over because I, it didn't, it never generated the clout to let me do that. So you're kind of, you only succeed control in selling either at the very, very top of the chain when you're a hit or when you're totally off the radar and no one gives a shit. Yeah. You know, and then you can sell it any way you want because you're, just, you're rubbing your own quarters together trying to figure out a way to, to get it out there. Uh, Arabesque, is, is, that a, is that about somebody who's sick? Um, I never thought of it as somebody who was sick, but maybe... Since you brought it up, maybe a little sick. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> but in what in what way? Yeah, I mean, it's no, it's not a reference to somebody with any kind of disease, God forbid, or anything like that. It's a song that's very. Uh, I I actually, you know, I love the song. It's it's compassionate. 
it's uh it's merciful it's forgiving it's connective um it's the opposite of putting up a wall it really wants to join people rather than separate people i when i first heard it um it felt very much to me um it felt sort of like an elegy maybe that's what you're feeling too like i i it felt um reflective and a little bit of grief in it that's how i heard it and maybe that's maybe that you know it's so interesting from the writer to the to the listener um there was to me a a very um whether the words betrayed it or not the feeling to the song um was 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 loss and grief and, and and a bit of a sadness um you know in the studio we changed it from a 4/4 to a 3/4 the, the the initial movement of the song was 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 didn't didn't have that 1 2 3 1 2 3 1 2 3 um and i think that happened because of that that sense of kind of i don't know yearning or movement something i don't know it was interesting it was an interesting change in the song that yeah, was really significant too i mean arabesque is a dance and you know i i wrote and i thought there's something about it that's good, but it just wasn't working. I don't even know if it was a, a contender for the album. And then uh, we just started messing with it. I had a problem wondering how I would phrase the lyrics to go into, without really changing any of them, to fit effortlessly and phrase them into this waltz-like tempo. And, and uh, one morning... We just kind of did it. Mm. Um, and the song is a thousand times better as a result. It, it wouldn't have worked in in the 4-4. Four, four. It wouldn't have had any of the emotional impact yeah, it, didn't, it has now. It didn't feel... You know, it's interesting, Frank, because there's one, one element where I think that, that these apropos of what we're talking about, and, and significant maybe or maybe not, was, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but... Lyrically and musically, Peter wrote these songs, um, and every song, and we, we actually recorded them in a specific order, organized by a story uh, that I imposed on his work. So there's a massive imposition going on that Peter was sort of tolerating. And I don't bring that up for like saying, like, about me, it was about. I'm, it's more. I'm curious more about Peter's process than mine in that sense. Because as a producer, that's really only my only job is to create a lack of option, if you will. I think great producers mm. don't overwhelm people with options. They give people specific choices to make and live with the consequence of the choices. I know when I'm being produced well as an artist, my producer doesn't say, "You can have anything you want, Dave." They come and they say, here's what we got. <laughs> and I've had horrible experiences with producers that have babied me and given me too many options and I've blown out. And wonderful producers that have put me in the right container and said, 
you're the artist, I'm the producer, here's your box, live in it, I'll make sure you get enough food and light. Um, with this album, there was this constant imposition of every song from Deep Freeze to Hitchhiker to Moss to Arabesque to the way it's ordered was placed as a narrative that I ex explained in some detail to Peter and in great detail to the band and was that forced, I think, a frame of reference either to maybe only for me as an auditor. I mean, it may have just been a giant wank for me. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. But the thing is, is that even so, it was helping me organize the, the way the album moved, the sonic feeling of it. And it forced me to ask questions of the artists constantly of why and how, and this is what I feel. So your question, Peter would probably say one thing too. I would say, when I thought of Arabesque, it was at a point in the journey of the story that it was a dream. It was a dream that the narrator was having and it was a nightmare actually. It was a, it was a, it was a kind of a both, a, a both one of those dreams that both is incredibly attractive and horrifying at the same time. And to me, and Peter's you know, was laughing then and will laugh now, it was a dream of dancing, waltzing with a beautiful corpse. So Arabesque was indeed, in my mind, dead. Well, you were right about that disease, Frank. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, not, no, no longer diseased, but dead. Yeah, right. It was, it was catchy and fatal. So, you know, again... Well, I... Yeah, I pulled out the dis, the sort of dis-ease part of it when, you know, I see you suffer from your sins, nothing easy when you fall in low and blah, blah, blah. But, but I want to ask Peter and then maybe how you respond to it, David, is so would this record have been drastically different if not for being able or actually not being able, but, you know, not actually collaborating with David and others? I mean, because you said you found, like, you found this song because of this idea change if you will when it came, went to a three four and whatnot so. well i mean I, I don't know about the corpse ideas being radically substantially changing anything but in answer to your question 100 percent. i try to describe for people who ask the very same question some of my musician friends well you know david's not like a quote record producer whatever the hell that means yeah. um so how you know how how much a part in shaping the record did he have and in, enormously the record probably would have been a very almost rootsy kind of acoustic blues record which might have had its interesting side but absolutely different than what you're hearing now and you know when david came and talked about the collision or the sort of the happy accident of working together on this record it was a perfect time for me for someone who cared the title are you there was chosen of all the lyrics it just came out to me that is the question that i ask constantly um is anyone there in our population that's so segmented our our inability to reach one another you know this this 
sense of anonymity that just is so pervasive who knows anyone who can communicate with anyone even with your with your wives and children i mean uh is does anyone care about my music anymore it's a question i ask every morning um when david took an interest to the extent that he wrote me this very long email with the order with the corpse reference with the whole thing to me it was an enormous gift and it really spoke to that question of are you there yeah well he's there somebody cares and david's not a schlub you know it's a very bright person so just in a very personal sense an emotional sense it filled that place of you know restoring a sense of hope to what i was doing do, do you think you're are we all in the same boat right when you ask are you there wow you hit me right in the center of my chest but when you're working on the guardian or you're working on a screenplay david is that what you're saying too is somebody out there whether it's whether you finish that with are they like me will they hear this all that stuff i mean are, are we all on the same, same, the same sort of journey? We're just taking different paths to get there? Absolutely. I mean, there's no, nothing more universally common than the fact that I believe we're all sort of etching invitations to others through our work. Where we are, whether it's however we see it, unless we don't, unless we've cut ourselves off from that fantasy we're all trying to manifest um, communication, interaction, uh, dialogue with the world. So when I sit down to write, to me, um, I'm, I'm, I'm offering an invitation to people to please join me by writing something. I'm not a novelist. I'm not writing something presentational for so alone in my room for someone else. And even even the novelist is writing a letter to somebody else. But I think that we're all writing as a way to connect with either ourselves or probably more honestly with somebody or something else. So, um, you know, that's where, and it doesn't change whether it's a screenplay or whether it's, you know, doing interviews and having a show or being, doing journalism or it's all the same impulse. It, it, it gets us out of bed in the morning because we fantasize that we get to connect. And otherwise you just can't do it. Otherwise just, just go make money because, you know, that's a different thing because you you can buy your experiences that way or you can do this magical sort of thinking of i'm going to create something and perhaps someone is on the other side of this perhaps someone's there on the other side of this who will catch it collaborate with it and enliven it you know i think i think we all hit a point in our career where being alone is is no longer attractive it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, we get so, uh, I mean, the, the, the thousand dollar word is homeostatic, but we get so stuck in our ways, we can't see ourselves anymore. And our old tricks have become, our tr we're sort of trapped in our old tricks. And I'm not saying Peter was trapped in his old tricks, I'm saying that I know in my experience, I've been there, 
uh, where I needed to be shaken a little bit and, set, and be told to get out of my comfort zone or get out of my routine and listen, truly listen to somebody else, which is a very hard thing for an artist to do. Uh, because by our very nature, we have distrust. You know, it's our way. We don't trust another person's way because that feels almost like we're plagiarizing or we're stealing or we're borrowing. It's hard. And I think what Peter did was incredibly brave to, to sort of not just invite me in, but to, um, to force himself to check his proclivity to say no you know i'm a strong person so you know and i'm a i'm a long waiter and i've worked with a, a lot of people who are um extremely charismatic i use as a uh, euphemism <laughs> and uh so i think what we had as a great relationship is i knew when peter was going oh screw this this is ridiculous but i also knew better than to say if you don't take me seriously i'm gonna walk out of here right now i was just Go, he doesn't like it, it's okay. And I'd wait. And Peter would do the same with me. He'd be like, that's a bad idea. But if I tell him it's a bad idea, he's gonna fight me. So I think we've both reached this point where we understand when we're smirking (laughs) what the other person's smirk is about. And uh, it kind of works for us. Well, that's good. I mean, really that's what you want out of a collaboration. You know, I, I, for so long I was in a band situation, and and uh, I had my own ideas, and I got so sick of having to bring everything to the to the board. You know, especially since I'd written all the stuff, and I just really wanted to have this fascistic say, and I had to say for a long, long time, and what it got me was really lonesome and really sad and I was saying the other day I read the Keith Richard book the autobiography he talked about the love that he had for being in that band situation it kind of rekindled in me the the idea of collaborating being with another voice even though it can be challenging there's nothing more challenging than facing one's own loneliness day after day and as David said getting caught up in your old tricks thank you for being kind and saying I don't know if Peter was caught up <laughs> it wasn't caught up in his own tricks I mean I was stuffed to the gills in my own tricks with that I gotta go because I'm speaking of collaborating I'm, I'm due at Sony in 20 minutes so Dude. I'm off listen totally um, appreciate your work and appreciate this time so much too So good to see you nice to meet you all right, David, take care of yourself. Be, be safe. Well, just to go on, we're, just to talk about what you were talking about there with loneliness and, and being alone, a call from the road, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, that song's obvious in, in metaphor and obvious in some perceived actual experience. You know, and that's where the line, are you there, comes from. Not only are you on the line, but are you with me? Are you approving of me? Are you still in love with me? Do we still have a relationship? Um, that's a you know that's an important song on the record, I suppose. 
There were a lot of songs, too, those songs that you pointed out and asked me about the lyrics. I, I might have written maybe 35 songs. And David culled them down to this number. And I didn't really argue with him. I just went with the whole thing. So, so did you get to a point where, okay, I, I don't know if this getting back with people is all it's cracked up to be. Because you do, like, as you said, you get pretty set in your ways in that, in that world of loneliness, if you will. Do you, did you at some point go, okay, maybe I didn't make the right move here. Or, you know, because there's always that, there's always that thing that goes, well, I'm comfortable back here for the last 25 years writing music in my square box with nobody bothering me. Well, I mean, did I make the right move? It's a, it's a topic that, you know, we're constantly talking about, um, there were a lot of, maybe probably discussed this in the other interview, you know, there were a lot of decisions that I made um, just because I wanted to, you know, raise my kids a certain way and deal with my family a certain way. And there's no question that they impacted um, in a, in a uh, quantitatively negative way on my career. And... And the price, there's a price to pay for it. And part of it is, you know, I'm, I'm paying for that price now. I'm paying for, you know, paying for the price in terms of some level of obscurity. And do I think that was, you know, did I make the wrong decisions? Not really. I don't really think... Um, that I would have done things any particularly different way. Um, but as I've said, and I don't want to belabor this point, um, there's, a just, there's a certain price to be paid for everything that you want. Well, what I wanted to ask, or maybe what I wanted to understand is, so when you actually went into the, the band mechanism that is Minnesota, working with people, was there a time during that work with this record that you kind of went, why am I doing this with other people now? No, and no. And actually have some small regret for that. Not at all. Um, and by the way, the only thing that was really banned mechanism about this <clears throat> was my relationship with David. You know, the band were people that, that I hire just like I hire musicians on any project that I do. So the only truly collaborative piece was working with David. Talk to me about Death by Snakebite. I really put question marks around the whole song because that is in that bluesy, groovy thing that maybe where, maybe where the roots of the whole record are, musically. Yeah, that definitely was... You know, we tried our best to sort of take it out of that sort of Robert Johnson universe. Yep. Um, you know, obviously keeping a trace of it in. I suppose if I hadn't worked with David, the whole album would be maybe just me and acoustic guitar and a, maybe a kick drum and a upright bass or something. And that would be real bluesy. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I love the song. I think it's a, it's a great line. I had several other uh, verses that didn't make it to the record. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, 
sounds like a like a you know death by snake bite all the lines are fun to sing and good to listen to in the car i'm sure so let me jump to um a song that was i guess i thought very comforting when i when i listened to behind me it's where it came down in my heart yeah i mean it's a nice sentiment about a uh, you know a person who goes out in the world and has doubt and in terms of answering the question, are you there? Maybe there's just one person that, that was there yeah. and that's all you need. And, and for the moment. And at least in that moment, the, the person who's the character is feeling very fulfilled. I like it's a, you know, it's a very pretty song. Yep. Yeah, in Ash and Chicken Wire, maybe not so pretty. Well, that would be a song reflective of a, of a character who really made the wrong choice. So in, in his uh, sort of recon, reconnoitering the decisions, he feels that he, he'd, he'd given up way too much. And, and there was nothing left, maybe no hope at all. I like the idea. I don't know what ash and chicken wire, like some paper mache sculpture that was, you know, made and everything's burnt down and you can just see the rudimentary frame and there's no flesh, no blood on any of it. Yeah, I thought, uh, I, I, I know we talked a lot about the spiritual world last time, but do you and David talk about that as friends and where you're at and maybe the struggles that you have in this world about it? I mean, was there, is there ideas like that that you guys talked about and ended up on the record? Well, we don't, you know, <clears throat> really talk too much, you know, we don't talk ever about politics or religion per se, um, ever. I don't, I don't really deign to know his views on politics and I don't think he knows mine um, but we don't we, we have I wouldn't call them like discussions they're not theological at all but they're yeah. a person's place in the world we talk about morality um, responsibility obligations what makes a righteous person Hey, I forgot to, uh, I thought it was cool that you kind of had a, a, a reprise there with uh, Can't Outrun the Things You Need. Yeah, you know, I kind of wrote that later. I, I felt that the energy that we had in the beginning of the record was just kind of lacking. I wanted to get back to a piece of that. So, you know, I, I like to edit things together and just wrote that song. Yeah. Of course, I, I liked that line. I thought it was a good yeah. line. and. I had created a piece that was a lot fuller instrumentally, and David came and just told me to strip it all away. Mm. Um, you know, I, I like how it turned out. It's a real short thing. It's maybe it's like a minute and thirty seconds. Just kind of right, yeah. reminded you of where we were in the beginning. It was starting to get a little soft. How's that for my ADD? I had to jump over and jump back. But I, what I really meant to ask right after we were talking about sort of that, the, the conversations that you might have about morality and whatnot with him is because of the song, Help Me, Help Me Build a Ladder. Because I think there's that, you know, I mean, it's the Help Me Lord thing in there and it's, we all need 
we all need God or whatever we all need beyond us, even though we're all the same. I know that that song influenced him a lot because that was the working title of the record at some point, Help Me Build a Ladder. That was the title that we went in with and the title that kind of guided us as we recorded the record. And, um, you know, I, I found that to be a, a hopeful song where the character is at a place of, of fearlessness that he can ask for something, you know, or desperation or it's the first sign towards, you know, making the change that was promised in the song Hitchhiker. It's kind of getting your light on, put your light on, is, is asking. For me, I find it very difficult to ask for anything. And it's, uh, it's something I definitely need to overcome. It's a, it stems from my own pride and hubris. You know, if they loved me, they would know, they would be able to read my mind. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you learned that. I guess I'm learning it right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's something that not everybody has. People are pretty some people are pretty fluent in that language. I'm not, and it's it's a really important piece in anyone's life. And and it, maybe that song just grew out of that. Well, you know when David said um about working, I guess it was that he you have distrust in other people, and I I guess I wondered, do you think it's distrust or is it that hubris or is it ego that that gets in the way and and makes you think that, oh, well I can do all this myself. I I think it may be a combination of both. I I tend to resonate towards the the mistrust. Um, you worry mm. about other people's agendas. You worry. I worry about people's intelligence and talent. Um, the thing that made David such an attractive partner to me is that he is so, he's a gifted communicator and he's so intelligent and he's a real challenge to me. Um, I mean, you can hear just in this one interview where he's coming from. He's deeply perceptive and the more I knew him, um, the more I trusted his ability to help me. I must say in the beginning, after I'd read that email that he'd sent to me, which was like a, a treatise on how the song should be you know, produced and treated and sonically in order, and, and I really liked it. I also, I, as I mentioned, I liked that he cared. Yeah. But I also liked the things he had to say, and it began to... I started to trust him more and more to the point where I asked him, I had the studio date already set. And I said, you know, would you be interested in coming to Minnesota with me? And he said, well, can you handle an opinionated Jew breathing down your back the whole time? <laughs> and I said, you know, to be fair, I'm not sure I can, but I'll give it a shot. And I also assumed this forcing frame on myself, which was reject no idea of David's out of hand. Mm. 
And some of the ideas, for example, that piano riff at the beginning of Snakebite. You know, he was trying to, to talk to me in words about what he thought it should be a piano riff. And I'm, I was just like, I don't know if I was tired or what. I was, that was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> but being true to my promise to myself, I never promised him that I would follow everything he said. I promised myself. And when I went through it all, it turned out really well. I thought it was a really good idea, especially because we both agreed to leave the literal reading of Robert Johnson and go to another place. This is a great way to get there. And very unexpected. I never would have thought to use a piano riff in this thing. Well, I guess I go to the song. The last song is Send It Up because it's, I, I think it's a lot about taking a risk. And when you have words like, I'm going to dive in the ocean, I'm going to walk on the earth, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to show you uh, all of what I'm worth, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the line, walk on the crust of the earth, comes from the last sentence of this book by this Israeli author, David Grossman. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book. I should tell you later. Uh, yeah, well, that's, I guess, I guess, you know, again, when you're talking about when you are taking the risk to being able to absorb others in their ideas, that, yeah, sometimes you just got to, and, and I think part of it is wanting to show them, like you said, if he's, a, if he's a really intelligent guy, no matter who it is, right? There's part of you that wants to go, all right, I'm going to show you that I can do this. And maybe that comment is to yourself, not necessarily to him. Well, I mean, right. I mean, you want to you wanna respond in kind to somebody's, you know, thoughtful suggestion or thoughtful gesture. I mean, it creates a, an energy that certainly wouldn't be here if I were working by myself. Now, I'll tell you something that did happen. When he worked with me, because we tracked this whole thing largely in three, in three days in Minneapolis. So I didn't really know for sure that he was going to be with me for the rest of the ride, which was like, we framed the house. Now it's time to do all the finishing. And I started working in my studio by myself. And my wife came in and she was really pissed at me. She's like, what are you doing? And I mean, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm, I'm attacking this work like I always do. You know, fixing things, adding 12-string guitars, and making it sound like a record, because I know how to do this. She said, well, why aren't you working with David? I'm like, well, I don't know that David's even interested in, in doing this part of it. Well, he was interested. Mm. He was very interested. I mean, to the extent that he was there for almost every edit and every overdub and everything. And the other forcing frame that I wound up putting on myself is I'm not going to play one note without his sort of jurisdiction. And that was extremely mm. difficult for me. And he gave me this interesting idea, which may be sort of a familiar one to you and your listeners, but he said... Part of what you need to do, Peter, is to stop working. 
you need not to apply your facility to this. You need to stop and look at it. Some ways it reminds me of a, a Sabbath. Stop working. Take a step back. Look at your life. Look at your work before you jump back into it. With all these, you know, old tricks that I'd always use to, you know, some of them I wound up implementing. Some things that I've learned in, you know, 30 years of making albums. Yeah. But just to have that sense of not rushing it, which is also painful because I'm always going to, towards the end. Um, you know, it's very hard now to quantify the success of this record because we're, we're in a place in the, in the record business where, you know, everything's up for grabs. I mean, it's the, the old model is, is over. I mean, in the two years since I put out Mystery in the Hum, it's even gotten, I won't use the word worse, but it's changed even more. Oh, yeah. It's grown farther and farther from what what it was. And, and, and I have to really figure out what is a way to quantify the success for this record. So one clear way is by listening to the record and saying, wow, this is really a great record. The other way is to see all the ways that I've learned um, about creating in general, about creating records specifically and being in a, in a collaborative, creative relationship. And those two things are of significant value. Third, which I'm waiting for, is some feedback, you know, apropos to are you there from, from the public. Hey, I want to ask you about the, I think the one song I hadn't asked you about yet is uh, A Thousand Blackbirds Fall. Wow. I, I just remember when that happened, and I, I, that, I can't even wrap my mind around that. And I, I don't know if you're wrapping your mind around it, but you're writing about it. I didn't wrap my mind around it at all. I just thought it was a great lyric or interesting image. Yeah. Um, and like I say, and I've said in you know, other interviews with you, the less sort of consciousness I bring to this process, the more interested I am in the outcomes. So... Obviously, I read that story um, about the blackbirds, and it must have affected me in some way. Yeah. Because, you know, out came a song. And when I sit down to write the songs, sometimes I'll do a Rihanna process where I'm, you know, kind of laboring through and constructing. I'm not unfamiliar with that. But. You know, I'm most interested in the kind of things that just appear and they're sort of obfuscated from me. And they come directly out of what I would consider my unconscious mind. And then I can sit back and kind of, you know, wonder about them just like anyone else. And I'm, you know, I'm proud that they, they came out of me, so I have a stake in them. But as a human being, and as a spiritual man, and as a person concerned about our world, when you hear about that, do you not just sort of cock your head to the side and go, 
how can this be God? Or how can this be world? Or you know what I mean? Do you, or do you just almost the way you write, do you just sort of let it come into your, your information dome and, and stay there and, and, and fade out and it ends up being a song? Are you talking about the Blackbirds phenomenon? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, man, I got to tell you, the Blackbirds thing's got to get in line because there's so many other things that, that would go on, you know, that would, I would ask that question like, you know, what, what's the deal? What's happening? Where are we? Who are we? Who's in control? What's the plan? Yeah, so the, black, the Blackbirds thing was, that goes... That's somewhere down on the list. I don't know where the list is today. The, probably today's list is thinking about that young 15-year-old girl in Pakistan and thinking about what motivated that 22-year-old kid to shoot her in the head. I'm really curious to, to develop a degree of empathy. Sounds weird, doesn't it? For why he did that yeah because he wasn't insane there's not it's not insane at all what about a young woman getting an education is so threatening to the male of our species that he would shoot an innocent beautiful teenage girl in the head But and is it part of what David was saying too that somewhere in his brain he's doing something heroic? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. He is absolutely upholding his conception of of righteousness. Well, I'll try to figure out the blackbirds. You try to figure out that guy and uh, maybe we'll we'll get somewhere. All right, we'll meet. <laughs> That's right. Hey, I think we got somewhere today. I appreciate your time very much. You're, you're, you're a thoughtful man. and Thank you, friend. This is a great interview. I know that David respects your interview chops from the, from the get-go. Oh, really? I saw his body language. He's like, oh, good. This is a good one. You're really, really good because, you know, we do a lot of these and these are really thoughtful questions and i really appreciate it thanks for the nice compliment and, and thanks to david much too so it's too bad david hollander had to duck out early but sir peter held his own yes ah. i completely love him as a man husband father and artist he's not only pushing his own dang self He's good at nudging others toward greatness. And that's a word and the type of man in which I want to associate.
Thank you, thank you, thank you for reals. I know you're searching. Don't, don't stop. Keep on scouring lyrics and songs and movies and books and anywhere you can find inspiration. Because, and I know I'm still wrestling with this, you are worthy of love and a great life. Give and get. Listen in and share the goodness. I sign off sincerely, comma, Frank Jenks. Questioner, interviewer, searcher, hoper. Hoper.